Please pray with me. Almighty God, open our hearts, open our minds. May your word be found in my words. Amen. So as I said, in, in John we get this different kind of narrative in that you don't get that first person uh, account of the baptism, but instead you get John telling us about what happened the other day, which is an interesting way of putting it, especially because John is the one that starts off in, in chapter 1 by saying, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And yet, uh, the first time that we see Jesus appear uh, as a human in John's Gospel, it's other people talking about him. And I always like the, the idea that John is just speaking to some unnamed crowd. It's, I imagine it uh, kind of like when they have those man-on-the-street interviews, or person-on-the-street interviews on, a, on the news thing, and so you just see John the Baptist and saying, look, I was talking about this guy, and he was there, and look, there he is right now. And he's just walking by, and Jesus walks by in the background, and then keeps on going. And uh, it, it adds an interesting kind of narrative device to John's gospel, because John's gospel has a slightly different tone. And so what happens in terms of the first time we encounter Jesus, we encounter Jesus not by encountering Jesus, we encounter Jesus by other people talking to us about Jesus, which is really a theme in John's Gospel, that as we understand who Jesus is, we are not sent to become pious or perfect or imitators so much as we are called to then tell other people what has happened, what, has, what we've seen. And so it's interesting in that sense then that John's version of the baptism is someone telling us about the baptism. It's how it was experienced by other people instead of this uh, kind of historical account of what happened, uh, which is what the other Gospels give us. This story then goes on to see that uh, John the Baptist is, again, talking to the, to the news cameras about what happened, and then he sees Jesus, and John has a couple disciples. And more than, more than a couple of disciples, but there were two disciples with him. So then this is, again, the next day that Jesus is walking by, and he says, look, the Lamb of God, there he is again. And immediately, John's disciples become Jesus' disciples. Because the whole point of what John was doing was having disciples to push them towards Jesus. And John makes a point of saying, I didn't even know who this guy was. I mean, I knew he was coming, but I didn't recognize him when I saw him, and then I realized, oh, this is the one. And so for John's disciples to immediately then follow Jesus, it's not a surprise to John. One of them is Andrew. We, just, we hear there's two of them there, and one of them is named Andrew, and he goes, and they go up to Jesus and say, Rabbi. And, and Jesus says to them, what do you want? What are you, what are you looking for? Which is such an interesting thing. What are you looking for? And they, and they respond with also a very response. We just want to know where you live. Like It's like they want his autograph or something like that. And Jesus says, well, come here, and I'll show you. And then he shows them where he lives. And then the story moves on. And Andrew goes to his brother, Peter, and says, Peter, we found the Messiah, or the Christ, Savior. So again, we, we, I, it's important to remember that the word Christ is just a title. It's not Jesus' last name. Um, and we often think of it that way. His middle name begins with an H. I'm not exactly sure what it is, but I've heard people say it when they're really angry. Um, and so... Christ just is the Greek word for Messiah, which is the Hebrew word for Savior. So it just means, or rescuer, the person who's, who's sent to rescue us. Um, 
It's like when Luke Skywalker shows up in Star Wars. I really tried not to talk about Star Wars. I'm sorry. And he says, I'm Luke Skywalker. I'm here to rescue you. That's Jesus. I'm Jesus Christ. I'm here to rescue you. Um, and so Peter hears about this. Andrew says, hey, we found the Messiah, the one we've waited for. Peter shows up. Jesus, again, uh, very confident. Jesus has the confidence, I imagine, of uh, uh, like a magician always going, was this your card? Like that's John in Jesus the whole time. So Jesus is just standing there, leaning against a tree. Peter shows up. He's like, hi. He goes, you're Peter. But I'm not going to call you that. Oh, no, you're, you're Simon. But I'm not going to call you that. I'm going to call you Cephas, which is also known as Peter. This, well, John is constantly trying to impress us with the fact that he knows a bunch of different languages <laughs> in this. Uh, and so we get this very interesting story of, of Jesus' baptism. Again, it's not inconsistent with the other ones, but it just has a very different tone. The passage in Isaiah goes really well with this. I, I don't know if you picked up on this. Hopefully you have after about four years. That I really like to see how the Old Testament and the New Testament are in conversation. They constantly are. That's why I'm always talking about both of them. Is that The Old Testament helps us to understand the New, and the New Testament helps us to understand the Old. Because the people who the New Testament is happening to understand the Old Testament. This is not a mystery to them. Every, every male uh, in... Uh, 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 the society of Judea at this time was taught the Torah. And up until the age of, I think, 10, they were to memorize it, like word for word, the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible. So Matthew, or not Matthew, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They would have to just say, go, and then they would say it. And those that were good enough at reciting it by the time they were 10 would then go on to the next level, like middle school, and they would have to learn the, the ketuvim, the neveim, the, the writings, the law, and the prophets. So the rest of the Bible. And by the time they got to be 12, then they would say, go. And you would tell them Genesis through Malachi for us. Uh, it's different in the Hebrew scriptures, but it's, the order is different. And, and you wouldn't just recite it all at once, but you would be asked, in a sense, to, to name things, to name parts of scripture. And so even if you failed at age 10, you knew the scripture enough that you were expected to have known it. And at age 10, if you didn't make it, uh, then you become a fisherman. If at age 12 you don't make it, then you become a fisherman. Like that. So the fact that Jesus is going to fishermen means that he's going to the people who failed their, their owls tests and didn't get to go to Hogwarts. <laughs> but they still know about all of the stuff. And so... Um, uh, why was I talking about that? Uh, the reason why, we, why it's important for us to, to bring in the Old Testament is to know that the Old Testament, it's given as read that you should understand what the Old Testament was. This is the, it, I, I've used this as an analogy a lot, but if you were to pick up The Return of the King, which is the third book in The Lord of the Rings, and just start reading it, that book doesn't bother to tell you previously on Lord of the Rings. It just goes. And so it assumes you've been reading this book already, so you know what's going on. That's how the Old Testament is written. We should recognize when we start at Matthew, Matthew is telling us right off the bat, as you all know, this is the guy you've been reading about for 600 pages or however long the Old Testament is. It's a little longer than that. Uh, but all of those books in the Old Testament, it's this guy. And if you haven't read the Old Testament or if we just pretend like we don't need the Old Testament, we're going to be really lost as though you tried to just start reading Lord of the Rings in the third book. And so... Um, 
when we, when we bring in kind of what Isaiah is saying and, and work it into this, it's that, that's how the disciples would have been thinking about this and all the crowds even at the time. So Isaiah is talking about this call of the servant of God to bring good news. And, this, and the servant thinks naturally, well, of course, I'm supposed to bring good news to the people of Jacob. Jacob, who becomes Israel. So the, he uses Jacob and Israel kind of interchangeably here. So whenever you see Jacob, Jacob's name gets changed to Israel. Israel, Israel, just means wrestles with God. If you know the Jacob story, which is a really weird story, um, which is common for the Bible, um, that, that Jacob wrestles, has a dream that he's wrestling with God. God taps his hip and he pops his hip out, and so he walks funny for the rest of his life. But at one point, then, he changes his name to Israel. So the 12 tribes of Israel are just the 12 sons of Jacob, who become the 12 tribes of Jacob's sons. And Israel, even today, uh, the, the nation state of Israel right now is named after that historical understanding of we come from this descendant of Jacob, who was a descendant of Isaac, who was a descendant of Abraham, with whom God made the promise that these are going to be my people. And so you constantly get this, which, is, which we overlook it a lot, is that in this, the servant Isaiah is saying, yes, I'm going to do what I can, and I'm going to speak what I can, and obviously I'm going to talk to your people, Israel, and I'm going to give them hope. And then God says, but this hope is so big, it's not enough, or they're not enough for this. It's like I ordered way too much food, and we can't just invite these people. we got to invite all the people. And so I want you to know that your message is not to just go out and proclaim salvation, for the people of Judah, for the people of Jerusalem, for the people of Israel. But that salvation instead is for all the nations to the end of the earth. And it's not just they will bear witness to what God is doing to Israel, but instead that this promise to, the, to Abraham, which was a promise to the whole world even then, keeps getting understood to just be a promise for a certain group of people, and God is reminding us, no, 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 it is bigger for that. I am using you people to bless all people. Not, I am using you people to let everybody see how much I love only these people. And so that um, change is an important one as we recognize what's going on. One of the things, as I talked about with the kids, uh, um, whether you like it or not, a, a huge part of American culture is football which just to uh, stick it to the rest of the world, we don't call soccer, we're not talking about soccer. Everybody else calls soccer football because it's a game that you kick a ball with your foot. We play a game in which you're not allowed to use your feet unless you're the one guy who's from Poland or wherever and you wear a different helmet and you kick the ball. Everybody else doesn't ever kick the ball, but we still call it football because we don't want to play soccer, I guess. I don't know why we do that. And, and so... Um, in football, we're encouraged to be fans, and, and fandom in football can be really divisive. And football even now has become really interestingly divisive um, and been politicized and has all these things thrown on top of it that have nothing to do with the game or even the experience of football. Um, but when I was growing up, I, I grew up in, in a small town in Iowa. I was born in Pittsburgh, but then we moved out to Iowa, which when I was a little kid thought was in Africa because I was dumb. And... Uh, <laughs> And then when I realized we weren't driving over an ocean, I thought, oh, I guess we're here, and everybody looks like me and speaks English. And Iowa, I, I don't know geography. Um, 
But I got there and, and we grew up, and, and it was a, a big town for Iowa, but a small town for everywhere else. And one of the things as I started growing up, especially I got into elementary school and then middle school and all the way up until almost high school, uh, and then we moved back here, was that one of the most important cultural uh, community things was high school football games. And it wasn't like Texas or one of those places that takes it so seriously that it's really aggressive. But it was, uh, it was and that's not to slight Texas, but I've watched Friday Night Lights, and so I assume it's pretty intense. Uh, but it was, it was like Iowa, where everything is like, all right, that's, I mean, it was pretty pretty laid back. And there was something for everyone. And the vast majority of the people there didn't care about how the football game went. Now, a lot of people did. But as a sixth grader going, I didn't care about the football game. I went and I played uh, jackpot out in the, in the, at the end of the end zone. Jackpot's a game where someone takes a football and they just throw it up in the air and they say 200. And whoever catches it gets 200 points. When you get to 500, then you get to be the one throwing it. But if you try to catch it and you drop it, then you miss 200. It's like Jeopardy. And it's also the honor system, because you have to do the math to keep track of your system. But, uh, and so that's all I wanted to do. And then I got a little bit older, and then that was the first time that you could interact with, uh, uh, for me, it was interacting with girls in ways that was safe and awkward and weird. And I thought, and so first it's like looking at girls and running away from them, and then it's sitting by girls, and then, I don't, I don't know. It was a very interesting entree into uh, um, relationships that were more than friendships. And then I, be, then I was in the band. And the band, for something that is so uh, connected to what's going on on the field, we had so little interest in what was going on on the field. <laughs> now we knew, oh, it's time out, now we gotta get this thing right in here, but we did not care what was going on, but we cared so much about what was going on in the band. And it was this whole other ecosystem of what was happening. There are cheerleaders that if you've ever watched the cheerleaders, it is very clear they do not care what's going on in the game. But they are very focused on, now it's the time to cheer. And they're there for a certain reason. The parents of the players are there for a certain reason. The parents of people whose kids are now adults and live elsewhere who are just used to going to football games are there for a specific reason. Uh, the, being a kid who's just old enough to finally have your mom give you $2 so you could go buy uh, a pretzel at the, uh, at the concession stand and really used by a bunch of pixie sticks. That's a very specific reason to be there. And so it became this place that we could all be included without us all having to have the same purpose at this thing. And so inside of the arena of the football game was way bigger than just a football game. And for the most part, there weren't conflicting ideas. There, every once in a while, you get someone to say, hey, be quiet, we're watching the game, but that, then you just go be, play under the bleachers and do, do things over there where people can't see you. And it became this very social community thing. There's a, um, uh, and the picture on the front of your bulletin, uh, the picture up here indicates, there's, there's a show from, uh, from uh, British television called Doctor Who. Doctor Who's been going on for, uh, since the 60s. It's been going on for a real long time. And uh, it's, it's really good and, and used to be really nerdy, and now it's really cool. I don't really understand how that works, but uh, it was on PBS when I was a kid, so I watched it all the time. And one of the things in Doctor Who is that he's, his spaceship is this thing that looks like a police box, which looks like a telephone booth. Neither of the things that we have in this country anymore, but it was supposed to be, uh, the whole idea is that this spaceship used to have this morphing thing on it that wherever you went, it could adapt to be something that looked like something that it 
that was local, and so it wouldn't be surprising. And it's a spaceship that could travel through time, too. So uh, TARDIS is what it's called, uh, stands for Time and Relative Dimension in Space. So it's both a time machine and a space machine, but it broke, and so it always looks like a police box now. Um, but the biggest thing about the TARDIS that's really neat is that it's the size of basically a big phone booth, but you, go, you open up the doors and you go in, and it's huge. And that becomes kind of a, a running uh, meme of the show is it's bigger inside. I like that notion because that's what the church needs to be. A lot of times we operate as though uh, the church can be bigger. We want there to be more people in here. And if there's enough people, then we'll make the church bigger. But it needs to be of a certain kind of people. It needs to be, we've got space in here, but we've got space for people who are willing to uh, act in a certain way, dress in a certain way, look a certain way, contribute in a certain way. Whether we actively say that or not, that has been the, the cultural understanding of church in America, is that church in America looks a certain way. And if you don't like the way that church looks, then you go to a different church and they look this way, not that way. And we kind of are okay with each other, but not really. In the same way that the Ravens are kind of okay with the Steelers, and that they don't actually fight each other, but they really don't like each other. They're playing the same game, but they have very different purposes. And so this notion of the church being bigger on the inside is not to say the goal of the church is to get everybody on the inside but instead to help us know, as the church, that there's a whole lot more room here than we think. If the goal of a, of a high school football game was only to let people in who could tell you uh, what was happening on the field, there'd be a lot less people in the football games. None of the band would be there. Uh, none of the middle school kids would be there. I mean, it would be very, very few amount of people. Uh, but that's not the purpose of a football game. Football is just a thing that happens to be going on during a football game. The purpose of the church is to be a community, and a community that is not so, so homogenized that we're all focused on the same thing at the same time. Again, to, to push the football analogy a little too far, uh, if the goal of the football game was to know if, if you had to take an exit thing, what was the score? Who won this game? And if you don't pass that, you're not allowed back in next time. That wouldn't make any sense. But a lot of times we act like that's the purpose of the church. How can you be Christian if you believe this? How can you be Christian if you don't believe this? How can you be part of this community if you aren't willing to do these things? Or if you aren't willing to not do these things? That's not the story that Scripture gives us. God's kingdom is so big that the people that, got, that think that they're part of the group are not big enough to fulfill the promise. There is so much more salvation and grace that God has than just for a small group of people, a small nation of people, a small group of people who even understand what's going on. That the football game is just as much for the people who really don't care about football as it is for the people that are on the field. 
doing their best to win. The church is bigger than we think it is. The grace of God is bigger than we think it is. And our community is bigger than we think it is. And when you get inside that community, you, didn't, you shouldn't think, whew, I'm glad there's just enough room in here for us. You should instead all of a sudden realize, wow, this is so much bigger on the inside than I would have thought. Uh, tomorrow is Martin Luther King Day. Um, Martin Luther King Day is uh, fantastic and a, a thing that, that we didn't used to have. It wasn't until the 80s that we decided to have it. And even begrudgingly, um, it's, not a, it's a federal holiday, but it's not an official day off at a lot of schools. Uh, they'll have like an in-service day or something to not make people mad about it because we're terrible. Um, and yet, Martin Luther King um, was, a, was a pastor. Uh, he had his PhD um, in, uh, in, I think, in international relations, but uh, all of it through the church. He was uh, an ordained pastor through the Southern Baptist Church, and um, in the midst of all of his, um, his ministry was a ministry of liberation. And not simply liberation from uh, physical bondage, but even more so, a ministry from uh, a mental bondage that saw the world and saw God as smaller than God really is. And one of the, um, one of the big things that, uh, that Martin Luther King wrote was this profound statement, this letter from the, oh, it's already there. Uh, this letter from the Birmingham jail. Uh, in, I think, 1953, uh, maybe 63, at some point, uh, Martin Luther King had gone to, uh, I'm going to read this in a second, so you don't need to read this right now. Uh, I mean, you can, but I'm going to get you there. Uh, Martin Luther King had said, uh, uh, had, had been imprisoned for a nonviolent protest for a sit-in in Alabama, uh, in Birmingham. And he, there, a bunch, seven different clergy, white clergy from the area, took out a, a front page news editorial talking about how problematic King and the other protesters were and how this is not the way to bring about social change. And so Martin Luther King, on scraps of paper, wrote out longhand uh, this letter that would take probably 40 minutes to read. Um, but in this, he's talking specifically to the church and saying, uh, so many of the things that we, that we think of Martin Luther King saying are from this, but also so many of the things that we don't want to hear Martin Luther King saying are in this letter. And so I would encourage you tomorrow, because most of you have the day off, uh, read this letter. It's very available online. If you don't want to read it, go to YouTube and listen to it. Uh, again, it'll take you about 45 minutes. But there are two things I wanted to point out from this, uh, two Martin Luther King quotes from this letter. First is this. The judgment of God is upon the church as never before. If today's church does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church, it will lose its authenticity, forfeit the loyalty of millions, and be dismissed as an irrelevant social club with no meaning. Every day I meet young people whose disappointment with the church has turned into outright disgust. 
That's an important uh, quote, not just to say, well, we need to be attracting the young people, and if the young people don't like church, we need to change for them. That's not, what, that's not what Martin Luther King is saying. Instead, it's recognizing that the church in 1960s, and even the church today, has in many places become an irrelevant social club with no meaning. And it may not feel like that from the inside, but to many on the outside, that is what we are. And that is never what we were supposed to be. And then the next quote, if you go to the next slide, is this. We have to repent in this generation, not merely for the hateful words and the actions of bad people, but for the appalling silence of good people. Human progress never rolls in on the wheels of inevitability. It comes through the tireless efforts of men and women willing to be co-workers with God. And without this hard work, time itself becomes an ally in the forces of social stagnation. The work of the church is to both understand and to communicate that the church is way bigger on the inside than we give it credit for. That we cannot be silent. That our silence on issues of oppression, on issues of division, on issues of um, suffering in the world is just as good as being against helping those people that uh, King throughout, the big theme throughout this is, is that the worst thing is not the voices of bad people, because bad people are bad people. The Ku Klux Klan is not his biggest enemy. His biggest enemy instead is the silence of his allies, the silence of the church. People who say, ah, that's not something we're supposed to talk about in church. Uh, I know, but uh, the way you're doing it is probably not the best way. You shouldn't be doing things to get you arrested. Uh, you shouldn't sit down or kneel down at this place where we're trying to do something else because you're getting in the way of something we're trying to do. And we don't want to think about that here. So maybe there's better ways you could do that. As we go into this day uh, where we memorialize uh, a person, a pastor, whose main goal in life was to serve God in a way that helped others to see that God was bigger, that God's grace, God's salvation, God's emancipation was for all people, and that most of us are uh, emancipated or are, are enslaved by our separation from God and our separation from each other. A God who is bigger than this room, a God who is bigger than this community, a God who has love for those who don't even know God yet. So as we are sent out by the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, let us recognize that the sin of the world is that which would separate us from God and separate us from each other. If that is what Jesus takes away, then there is no reason for us to be separated anymore. There's no reason for us to not notice the oppression of those around us, for those to not notice the celebration of those around us and to join in. As we talked about with the kids, if your love requires you to hate someone else, 
whether that's a football team or a person from another country, then that love is not true. God calls us into a community that is so big that it is for everyone. The purpose of the church is to put that into practice. To not be silent at the things in our world that are creating injustice for anyone. But instead, to stand up, to stand with, and to stand for our brothers and sisters, our siblings in Christ, even if they do not know Christ. It's bigger on the inside. Amen.